In this prelude to eerie history, Mike Morin interviews Daryl Marston from A&E's Ghost Hunters. I'm here with uh, Daryl Marston from Ghost Hunters. Uh, how are you doing? doing? Good, First, good. Good. First question I ask everyone is, who are you? Who is Daryl? Who is Daryl? Uh, well, Daryl's been a lot of things in life, but uh, right now I'm uh, deep, deep, or should I say, uh, yeah, as deep in paranormal these days for the last several years. Um, yeah, I was filming the shows, and uh, I own a, par- a co-owner of Paranormal Warehouse, which is the largest paranormal-like streaming service in the world. So I'm pretty busy with that, and you know, except for producing a. Um, a show called Epic Haunts right now as well. So I have been very busy with that. Uh, before that, though, before I was uh, into the paranormal, you know, where it was just a hobby for me, but um, I was a, a firearms instructor for Concealed Carry. Uh, I owned a contracting company as well, and I did several other things. So, yeah, I've been doing a, I, I was pretty busy, still pretty busy. Sounds very busy. What yeah. got you into the paranormal? I, you started, what, 2006, 2008 era? Uh, 2005-ish, toward the end of 2005, I actually, when I had my experience where I got into it by complete accident, um, I was always interested, don't get me wrong, but I, it just never, I never thought of pursuing it. I didn't even know what a ghost hunter or paranormal investigator was at the time, uh, but I got invited to a local, like, uh, paranormal event. It's like two, three hours long, whatever, um, by a local team. I went um, I was like, I didn't know what to think. Well, you know, it was around Halloween. So, yeah, everybody's in the mood for stuff like that. And I went with my mom. She didn't have anybody to go with her. So me and my stepsister went. And I actually uh, ex- experienced something that really shook me. I, I saw a half-body apparition. At the time, I thought wow. I, was seeing th- I was seeing things. So I didn't talk about it for quite a while. Um, not until actually in the last year or two. It's how I really got started. And um so, yeah, I, when I left there that night, I just knew there was some way, somehow, I wanted to pursue this. And I had never thought it would lead me to where I am today. I mean, I had no clue. Um, I just started, I knew nothing about the equipment. I knew nothing about investigating. I just started doing local stuff, started teaching myself, you know, reading about it. You know, I read a lot of books about it and, um, and just started, you know, doing my own thing uh, for a long time. Me, and then I, at that, not long after that's when I started dating my wife, who's my wife now. And um, she was kind of, she got into it too. And so we just started doing it together and it grew and it's where it is today, man. That's awesome. Now with uh, your apparition that you saw, what was it now that you're looking back on it now, what do you think it was? Uh, Well, I, I was, I was in a, uh, a fort here in Delaware called Fort Delaware which was used as a prison for uh, Confederate soldiers during the Civil War. So, in my opinion, it was probably a Confederate soldier that I saw. Um, I remember vividly, to this day, I can still see his face. It was from the shoulders up. That's all I could see. Um, It was a man, uh, probably shoulder-length, scraggly hair, a really, like, bushy beard, probably about my length. And I remember the debris. I could see debris in his beard, like leaves, like, you know, just where he, he looked malnourished, like he'd you know, been in, you know, like he was in prison, in a prison camp. Yeah. And I saw him for maybe anywhere from between eight to 10 seconds, he was there. 
and then he just kind of sucked into a ball and was gone. Wow, that's a that's a neat story. I uh, similar story, not for me, but my uncle. He lives in Nova Scotia, so the eastern part of Canada. Yeah. And uh, he once he retired from the Navy, he became a long haul truck driver. So he was going from Nova Scotia to Florida, Alabama, up and down all the time. And um, he was driving through Pennsylvania and stopped at a truck stop for the night. And uh, he saw an apparition of a Confederate soldier walking across the field right into like the washroom. He thought it was uh, like, really? yeah, is he thought it was like a, here? yeah, it was is like a Gettysburg. I think so. Yeah, yeah Gettysburg. I mean, I, I, that's a funny story. You just said that. I tell people when I go to Gettysburg, you could, and I don't care if you're in a porta potty in Gettysburg, <laughs> you're going to get some kind of experience, man. I tell you, it's, I love it. I live about two hours from it, and it's one of the, my stopping grounds, wow. and it's always my go-to because you never walk away from there unsatisfied. You always get something. You always see something. You hear something. You feel something, and it's just an amazing location. The energy there is just through the roof. He thought it was a reenactment soldier. You couldn't convince him otherwise. Yeah. Like he, he asked because he traveled with his wife. And got her to check the female washroom. He checked the male washroom. He was convinced it was a reenactment soldier. Right, right, right. Yeah. But I, in the I, middle of the night, would they be walking around like that, right? <laughs> not necessarily. Usually you see them during the day, uh, when they're like, especially around June and July when they do the reenactments out there uh, for the Battle of Gettysburg. But uh, you don't see them all the time, yeah, especially like the winter and the fall. Yeah, you, don't, you very seldom see them. Wow, that's one of my goals is to do uh, some of the Civil War sites. Yeah, amazing, amazing locations. Cool. Now, what got you into the paranormal? Did you have any experiences growing up, or was it that half that apparition you saw that? Tenor? The apparition. Yeah, I, I mean, I I grew up in a haunted house when I was very young, but I don't remember it. I just remember the stories my parents and my grandparents would tell me, and what I overheard. Actually, they didn't tell me. I was overhearing these experiences when I was a child. Um, where um, they would come in my room in the morning and all the drawers and dressers would be, the drawers would be pulled out and flipped up on the floor. All the clothes would be everywhere and things of that nature. I don't remember any of that. I was way too young. I was only like five to seven years old at the time. Uh, but that's not what got me into it. What got me into it was actually, you know, seeing that apparition. That's what really, you know, kind of catapulted me into this. Totally. Now, you have a lot of miles on your paranormal tires. Um, yeah. This is probably a question you get a lot, and I get a lot from, I've been investigating for over 15 years up here too, and one question a lot of people that are interested in our, our passion is, what is your scariest experience? Uh, scariest experience, I've had quite a few, but um, I'll, probably my, my scariest experience on the show would be when we were up in uh, Haynes, Alaska at the Halsingland Hotel and Mustafa and I were on the third floor and that apparition, I don't know if anybody's watched the episode, uh, I saw it physically charge down the hallway at me. I saw this dark mass and you could hear it. My producer and our sound person, the camera op and Mustafa, we all heard this thing running down the hallway toward me. And I jumped back into the room, almost knocking Mustafa over and then I went back out there and I caught it on my body cam. I, I totally forgotten I had my body cam on. And then I captured it twice, kind of peering. It once it peered around a corner at me. And then the second time it actually walked out to into the hallway and stood there for maybe two or three seconds and then darted back. 
on the show, it's probably my most com- compelling thing that I can remember. Off the show, I uh, actually was um, in Kentucky investigating at a place called the Anderson Hotel. And I was actually physically picked up and thrown about five or six feet across the room and landed on my back. And to this day, I don't know what it was or what happened or why it happened. Um, I actually even went back there about two months later to try to recreate it. And I couldn't recreate it and had no ex- no more experiences like that in the location. Yeah. Being thrown, what led up to that? Like, what, 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 where were you in your investigative process? Uh, well, the thing, it, the thing was, there was a bunch of stories we were going by. So we decided to investigate this one room. It was toward the end of the night, around 2.30, 3 o'clock. And um, so we said, well, we need to hit this one room because this is where people were having these experiences. People were getting bit, scratched, hit, uh, things of that nature. So we wanted to you know, see if we can recreate that. So we go in this room, there's, uh, there's four investigators, including myself, and um, the guy who was running the camera at the time, a friend of mine, he kept feeling weird, and then something, he actually got smacked in the back of his shoulders, and there was, you could see a, a, a handprint, and then something actually bit him on his calf, and you could actually see the bite marks. So he was like freaked out, was like, I'm getting out of here. Um, so him and the one girl left because she was freaking out. And the other girl was sitting in the corner, uh, the investigator. I'm like, hey, we got to get out of here. And she's like, no, I'm not leaving. I say, no, we need to leave. Yeah, things are getting pretty uh, crazy. And she kept looking over my left shoulder. And uh, the whole time, I'm like, what are you looking at? There was like a doorway to my left. And all of a sudden, I hear this charging, like like footsteps, boom, 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 boom. And I look to my left, and from my my peripheral vision in front of me, I see a flash of white light. And next thing I know, I, I mean, it didn't hurt me, whatever it was, but it was enough to pick me up, throw me probably about six feet. And I landed the chair I was sitting on was actually underneath of me and it was smashed on the floor. Um, so that's kind of what led up to it. So, man, it was a crazy story. Um, it's something I can't wrap my head around why it happened or how it happened. I'm, I'm very much a skeptic. Uh, I always want to recreate things, even when uh, I haven't happened to myself. So it was something I tried to, like, I went back there about two months later to try to recreate that whole situation. But I brought some different investigators with me this time and uh, just couldn't do it. Couldn't figure it out. Had nothing happen like that again. So, yeah, it was a very weird and strange experience. Wow. What are the accounts of that place? Uh, Well, it was a... um, kind of like a boarding house at one time back in the seventies and eighties. And it closed down in 1989. If I have my timelines, right. Uh, there was, uh, several murders in the, in the building, um, suicides, overdoses. Um, we had actually found and not just us, but other people that were finding sigils, uh, behind like pictures and mirrors and things like that. So someone, someone in there was practicing some dark arts. Um, so, yeah, what happened was in the 89, they actually closed the place down. They boarded it up. They left all the furniture in the location, beds, everything. Um, and so around 2015, I think it was, when they decided to reopen it. Someone bought the property. They took all the, the boards down, opened the property up. They started doing investigating. And the place started kicking off. So 
it's now closed down because it, it, they, I think it was only open for like two years for investigating. Um, and they actually closed it down. The owner was, you know, liability reason was like, you know, didn't want people in there anymore. So. Damn. Um, I've never been thrown. I've been choked before, which we'll, which we'll talk about later, but um, the paranormal warehouse, how did that start? And I love the website and I love the Instagram page for it, but oh, for, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, uh, Paranormal Warehouse actually started back in 2011 uh, by uh, my two partners, Mike and Chris. And Mike uh, Mike lives up in New York or outside of New York, and Chris lives out in L.A. Uh, I came around probably around 2015 as just a show. I had a show on there, uh, the American Ghost Hunter show. And uh, it was a streaming show, you know, a live stream. We did, you know, once or twice a week. And it was very, it got very popular. And the shows on there are very popular anyway. They, you know, they have, they get really high views. So I was lucky enough to them to bring us on, and it grew from there. And that's when Ghost Hunters found me was on there, and they they liked what I was doing. So I went to Ghost Hunters, and um, last year, um, about a year and a half ago, actually, I was approached by Mike and Chris. Because uh, I was still doing things behind the scenes with Paranormal Warehouse. I just wasn't on, on the uh, live streams because of my contract. I couldn't be. So they approached me and said, hey, would you like to come in as our third partner? And I jumped at the at the uh, chance and uh, the opportunity. So here we are now and we're growing. Uh, we, are, we also we, you know, just recently in the last year started our own production company. And uh, we're filming our own show called Epic Haunts, uh, which is... It's growing and it's getting some really cool reviews and we got some pretty cool people checking it out who want to do some stuff with it. So that's where we are right now, man. Um, and we're just, we're killing it. I love it. It's good. It's good to kill it. Yeah. yeah. Um, Ghost Hunters. One thing I liked about, I guess they called the reboot, like with the newer cast, um, how innovative you guys were and how you guys went to uncharted locations. Um, yeah. That's one thing I do up here. Um, like I, I investigate in, out of Vancouver, but I also am in Washington, Oregon, Montana, and all that quite often because I have a lot of friends down there too. Okay. When there's no COVID, of course. Um, but that's one thing I pride myself on is going to the unknown, the uncharted, and places people really don't know of. Because for me, I'm huge into history. But yeah. with history, there's a lot of forgotten people. Like I... I like to read about all that stuff, but then I like to go investigate it and try and right. Write it all. Um, well, yeah, and I mean the whole reason behind us going to these locations that have never been done before was because we we've all seen the Waverly Hills, the the Eastern States, uh, the uh, the the Ohio penitentiaries, and things like that uh, that have been done by many 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 shows. And one of the things we wanted to do is approach some of these newer locations that have never been heard of and really have not been investigated especially for anybody on tv and to bring them to you know to the, to the people so that's what you know one of our especially with season two we were like hey that's this is they're like okay let's do that but what we're going to do is we're going to put you in the most you know, a remote locations we can find and they did and they really they really stuck it to us it was it was very hard filming season two um because it was a lot of traveling i mean you would fly seven, eight, ten hours to some of these locations, catching three or four flights just to have to drive five or six hours to a hotel to drive another two hours to a location. 
you know, so it was, um, it was, it was, it was very wearing on us, but it was so worth it in the end. Once you see the finished product, you know, we, we would see it probably about a week or two before it actually got premiered. And, um, when you saw it, you're like, that's why we did all that. That's why we spent two weeks in Alaska freezing our asses off. That's why we, you know, we, we trekked through the desert in Arizona and for, for two weeks, we, you know, and, uh, had people threatening our lives. And this is why we did it. And it, it, it played so well on, on the show. And, uh, I tell you, I, I would, I, I wouldn't, you know, I would love to do it again and again and again, to be honest with you, because it's just an amazing experience to do it that way. It's hard filming that way because we have such a big production. I mean, there's like 25 of us all together between the cast and, you know, producers and camera ops and audio and all that. So that's a lot of moving parts. And that's why things, you know, right now, we're just not doing anything. Plus, LA still shut down. Yeah. The chemistry you guys have on Ghost Hunters is awesome. And it's I like the like the storytelling you guys do, like pulling in Mustafa to do like the history stuff and all that. And then you guys just hit it hard with investigating and then like Brandon with all the you know gear he brings in, like the parabolic mics, talking all the scientists, getting all the experimental gear. That's cool that you guys yeah. were able to, to put that together like that. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 so cool because on the original show, which you know I loved and a lot of people loved all those guys knew each other beforehand and they were all this tight knit group who had their own thing going on. Well, when they redid it, they wanted to like, Hey, let's, let's just bring people together who don't know each other from different ways of investigating from different parts of the country. And that was the cool, and to me, that was the cool concept with, you know, bringing all these people who didn't know each other together. These investigators from California, from me, from the East coast, and Mustafa from the East Coast. You got Brian Rochelle from the mid, mid, uh, Midwest. Then you bring Grant in as the executive producer, who's from the original show. And I, I, I it was a winning combination to be, you know, to be honest with you. They really did their uh, homework when they did that, and it, it really, it really played out well. Absolutely. Now, out of all the locations you did with Ghost Hunters, um, if you could have one do-over, which one would it be? Ooh, I got two, man. I, I, I would love to go back to um, probably Clifton, Arizona, where we had our, our death threats. Um, and I would love to go back to um, the Mohican Castle in Ohio, uh, which was just amazingly beautiful. Uh, and we did so much investigating there, but we had so much evidence they couldn't use it all and a lot of good stuff got left out that I think the, uh, the, the, the narrative took it in a different direction. And I would love to take it in the direction where us as the investigators wanted them to go, you know what I'm saying? Cause you, you gotta remember you have, you know, you, you, you got us out there doing the filming and everything and you got posts and they kind of, and you're, you're mixing it all together. So sometimes you lose a lot of stuff, man. A lot of good stuff, a lot of good evidence, and um, and that's no, it's not fault, no fault of anybody. It's just how you know they run with a narrative, of course. And um, so I think we lost a lot on that episode, which I would love to go back there and reinvestigate that. What were the death threats? Talk about those. Well, I can't say too much, man, because um, um, we we uh, 
99.9% of that town were amazing people, great people. They rolled the red carpet out for us. Um, and uh, we actually became, became uh, lifetime members of the Chamber of Commerce there. They gave us the keys to the city, all that stuff. But there was a small fraction of people who really didn't want us there. Um, I could tell you about one thing where um, Brandon, uh, Grant, and myself were standing on a, on a sidewalk filming you know, and we were taking a break. The camera guys were resetting or something. And we were sitting there with the one guy who runs the town. He's got this gentleman named Akush. And uh, this car kept driving by. And they came by for like a second or third time. They rolled their windows down and, and sent some stuff out the window. We really quite didn't understand. And then the guy, Akush, told us, hey, they're, they're, this is who they are. They don't want you here. Wow. Um, and then we had the incident where we were leaving town about 3 30, 4 o'clock in the morning, where something hit the side of the uh the escalade we were driving and blew the tire out and blew the back wheel well out of the escalade. So um we had yeah, it was we had some pretty interesting stuff, some some text messages to producers that I can't talk about. Um there's a lot of stuff that was actually we had to leave out for um legal reasons of course uh, that, that's scary that that stuff would even happen to you at a location like that yeah 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 um every investigator has a kryptonite location but they're like nope fuck no i'm never going there again what is yours yeah. i would say and, it, and the funny thing is you say that I, I was like that for quite a while with this location a place called the house of wills in cleveland ohio um where i had a really some crazy experiences and I said I would never go back. And then I just happened to be in Ohio, in Cleveland, about a year later. And the guys who I'm with, they're like, dude, we got to stop by the House of Wills. We got to stop by the House of Wills. I'm like, no, no. So we went. And I literally sat in the car for about 45 minutes while they went in. And I'm like, okay, I got to I gotta face my fears here. And I actually went back in the building for about a half hour, 45 minutes. And uh, I was okay. So, I was, yeah. That was the one place that really probably shook me the worst out of every location I've ever done, the House of Wills. It's something, you know, it was, it's the only location I've ever been to that I could honestly say it felt like the building itself was the entity. Wow. It, that it wasn't so much haunted by human spirits, and I'm sure they were there. It just felt like the building was alive, man. I never felt anything like that. It didn't want you there. Wait, what did you, did you have any experiences there or was it just the more? Yeah. yeah. It actually almost made me quit um, doing paranormal. Yeah. I, I had something, I had something follow me home from that location. Uh, and it basically attached to me for, for about a month and it really put me in a slump. I was depressed. Um, it was bad. I had to reach out to a bunch of people in the field to try to figure out how to shake it, how to get rid of it. And I, I eventually did, and um, it, it humbled me as an investigator. Uh, I think, I, and, I, and I wouldn't change it for anything, to be honest with you, because it really humbled me. Because I was, you know, I, I think I was very bullheaded and very arrogant at the time when it came to investigating, and going to that location really, um, you know, put me in my place and uh, made me a better investigator in the long run. I uh, I find that happened to me too. Um... When I was a young and dumb investigator, when I first started, um, I believed in haunted objects, but I was under the mindset, whatever, I'm stronger than you, no matter what, you can't do anything to me. 
Yeah. Um, but I had a haunted doll fuck with me. Um, it's called her name is Mandy the Haunted Doll. And um, I looked at it. I'm like, if you can do anything, do it. I challenge you in my head, right? I'm like, yeah. prove it. Prove it. And then before we started doing our investigation, like filming and stuff like that, I'm like, guys, let's go out to my truck and I'm gonna grab a drink and a snack. And the last thing I remember was waking up just about walking on the highway because this museum where the doll was housed, they have yeah. it in like an Annabelle enclosure with like a lock on it and everything. Um, I was just about walking on the busy highway. I had the other investigators grabbing me and shaking me back to, to being reality. Yeah. 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 And after that, I had like a huge newfound respect for the power of well, the paranormal. Yeah. 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 That's uh, kind of how the, the house of wills, uh, was with me. Um, I just felt like I was in a fog for the longest time, man. I just felt like I had someone standing over my shoulder. You know, this this dark entity of some sort just following me around for a good three or four weeks. And it was it was bad. Man. I was having stuff happen in my house that you only see in the movies. And it's like, this can't be real. You know, the, you know what I'm seeing and what I'm, and I'm experiencing cannot be real. And uh, yeah, so it's it was it was very humbling. Um, and uh, it, like I said, it made me a better investigator. And uh, I, I'm glad it happened, to be honest with you. I'm glad it happened to me. Now that you've experienced something like that, that actually is perfectly leading, what do you do to protect yourself when you go on investigations? Do you... I always approach every investigation as um, I'm there as an observer. Um, I don't provoke. I don't, I don't prod at anything. I go in there as a complete observer. I set equipment up. I ask questions. I'm very respectful to whatever's there. I don't care what it is um, or who it is, if there's anything there at all. Because like I said, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a complete skeptic. You can tell me every story in a book about a location. Yeah, it's exciting for me when I get there. But when I get there, I need to experience something. I need to experience it for me to actually wrap my head around it and try to figure out what's going on. Um, so yeah, I, I don't do anything to pre prepare except for, uh, my mindset is just, I'm there. Like I'm, it's like, I'm watching through a window at a location when I'm there, I'm not actually there physically. So I don't allow anything to, to, to touch me or to try to hurt me or whatever. I don't allow that. I just, it, I, I'm just so, somehow it's, it's wherewithal. It's a know-how of to kind of you know keep your distance, and I think they understand that and they respect that. I agree with you 100%. Being a figure in the paranormal field, you probably meet a lot of investigators from beginner to well-seasoned to fans. What advice do you give new people in the field? Um, there's a, it's very popular now. There's a lot of teams popping up, a lot of investigators. What do you tell them? Um, well we do these events where we travel around the country and we meet a lot of people. They come out, they come out to hang out with us, Peyton, and to spend the night with us and investigate these locations. Um, and one of the things I, you know, I always try to tell people, but you get, sometimes you get some newbies who've never done it before. And, you know, um, it's all about respect, man. It really is. It's respect for the field. It's respect for yourself and for the location and for the entity or who, if there's anything there at all, whether it be residual or intelligent, um, 
it's respect. It's you, don't go in there kicking in doors and and acting like you own a place. Go in there, explain who you are, uh, explain the equipment. Did you don't just take a bunch of equipment, throw it over in a place, and expect some something to jump through uh, hoops for you because it's. Would you do that if that was you as the you know, spirit on the other side? No, you would like F off and you'd be out of there. Yeah. You know, so you, you, you have to just go in there and you talk. You have a you, ha- you have a conversation with whatever's there. You have a conversation with the other investigators, just like you're in a room of people you've never met before. And you come in and you, and you strike up a conversation. And that's what I try to tell people, you know, don't go in there you know, trying to get these this entity or whatever it is there to try to jump through hoops for you because I, you wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. So it's all about the respect for, like I said, the locations and what, you know, whatever's there. And just, if you, if you do that, man, and you take your time, you do things right. You don't try to, you know, um, make everything paranormal. Cause there's a lot of people out there. They think every little knock and bang and Creek is paranormal. Everything. Yeah. I mean, every picture they take, there's orbs, guys now um just be smart about it do it right you know learn from the people who've been doing it for a while follow the right people and surround yourself with the right people people who are trying to further the field um and it's it's a no-brainer man you you you'll grow with that and you'll uh you'll come out on top in the end i 100 percent agree with you i sometimes send brandon some evidence or evps to listen to um that's what i say stay humble uh, we're all yeah. learning from each other and exactly um yeah. zoom says we have seven seven minutes and 38 seconds left so uh, you see a lot of shows and movies involving hauntings what's the difference between a show and real life like you being on ghost hunters versus well well me i, I will honestly say i can't talk about the rest of the shows are out there. I don't work with their production teams, but on Ghost Hunters, I mean, everything you see on the investigative side of it, as far as us investigating, when we go dark, that is 100% us, real, in the moment, happening. Yeah, of course, it's cut down because, you know, you can't, we're investigating for days. Uh, so you're only going to take the good evidence and show it in a 43-minute uh, show. Um, but, you know, when you're doing these investigations, especially if you're a newbie or if you've been doing it for a long time, um, you know that um, you could be sitting in a location for 10 hours and not get anything and then come back the next week and the place is active as hell. So it's just, you know, having patience. And uh, that's the big thing between watching the shows and doing it for real, you know, in real time is. You're, one thing you're, you're you're doing it on your own in your own on your own dollar when you're doing it in real time uh, on the shows we're sitting there for hours and hours and hours but you're only seeing the thirty seconds of good stuff because it gets edited down um, so yeah you just have to be patient man um, that's the big difference between the shows and what you're really doing you know last question. What pieces of gear do you recommend to new investigators besides phone apps, of course? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, no phone apps. <laughs> Stay away from phone apps. Um, I would, if, which is a great piece of, I got one right here. Hold on. 
this is probably one of my favorites. It's relatively inexpensive. It's about $200 EDI plus. Uh, this piece of equipment for the paranormal investigator, especially for us on ghost hunters and, you know, a lot of people these days, you see these everywhere since the show. Uh, this is an all-in-one. I mean, it does, you know, it, it, it does pressure, it does temperature, it does everything. Humidity, it's got a geophone in it, it does um, uh, EMF. But this piece of equipment is like kind of like a carpenter with his hammer. You know, a carpenter's not going to go anywhere without his hammer. And this is our hammer right here. I love this thing. It's very well shielded, so you don't have to worry about cell phones and walkie-talkie setting it off like a REM pod or a K2. It, it, it's, you're not going to be able to sit here and, and set this thing off across the room by you know, texting or, or keying in a walkie. This is what I love about this piece of equipment. And it also has a little slot up here so you can put a memory card in it and record everything that's going on so you can take it back, throw it on your laptop, and um, check it out later. Another piece of equipment would be body cam. Uh, I love body cams. Rel relatively inexpensive these days, 150 to 200 bucks. Uh, you clip it on, turn it on. It's like having another investigator with you. Uh, and the quality of the IR on them and everything is just amazing. Uh, you wouldn't think it with a body cam, but it, very, it really is. We capture captured a lot of great EVPs with our audio too. The audio is amazing on them. So that's probably my my two go tos right there, and yeah, maybe a good recorder. Like uh, I always like Zoom. I have a Zoom Six I carry around with me. Nice. Uh, yeah. So um, yeah, and you don't even need to go that expensive. The Zoom Six uh, when I bought it a couple of years ago was probably around four to five hundred dollars. Uh, you can get just a regular Zoom or you know a good you good audio recorder to you know, capture EVPs and things of that nature. But that's probably the three go tos. I mean. It's funny, I show up to these events and they're like, oh, you need help bringing your equipment in. And I got my backpack on. I'm like, I got everything right here. <laughs> yeah. what, what do you think I'm bringing? I just flew here for six hours. I didn't bring a bunch of equipment. Uh, so yeah, it's not like I have to carry a bunch of cases around. I got everything I need, body cam, EDI, uh, my Zoom 6, and yeah, maybe a static cam if you got, if you got one, you got a good one. Um, something you can sit down or you know just place in a spot. You could do that with a body cam too. You can unclip it, just set it on a shelf or a table or something while you're you know doing your thing. But no, it's all you really need, to be honest with you. I agree. Good audio. That's my favorite audio recorder. And the EDI has become clutch on my investment. Yeah. That's EDI and body cams today, man. It's so funny after the last episode with the body cam, which I caught as soon as I came out, my my Social media blew up with people just asking, hey, what body cam do you use? What's the model number? I was like, I don't think it really matters what model number it is. But then you go, like, I went on Amazon to look at some equipment, and I'm looking for body cams, and body cams are under paranormal equipment now. <laughs> it's the first thing that pops up. You, you type in paranormal equipment, body cams pop up on One Amazon. One of the best yeah. EVPs I've ever caught uh, is off a of body cam. Yeah. Um, yeah it was a mistake. Yeah, I was just about to throw the footage out because we didn't get anything, but I'm like, what the hell was that? And yeah, it was, yeah, uh, you really have to check that, man, because we've I've captured some of my best stuff on camera audio. On just like putting a static cam down and you go back and you're listening to it or you're watching it, and all of a sudden you hear something, you're like, wait, what, what was that? Then you have to rewind it and you're like, holy cow, 
Yeah, yeah. We, I've captured some amazing uh, EVPs on just camera audio, man. Cool. All right. Well, Zoom is going to kick us off now. Thank you very much, Daryl. I enjoyed this interview, and it was good. Thank you. Thanks All right, for thank you. Me. Yep.